Welcome to the True Vine Podcast. Wherever you are listening, we hope this inspires you, builds your faith, and brings perspective that God is moving in your life. Enjoy the message. Praise the Lord, everybody. Amen. There is an expectation in the air. Faith is in the atmosphere. I believe that we're ready to go to a new level in God. The Scripture and the Spirit are challenging us to go to greater depths and to greater heights and to stretch ourselves into greater places of the Spirit. And I am hungry for that to happen today. Amen. I welcome those online. Please have church with us. Don't just watch as a documentary. Have church with us. Join in with your praise and your worship that the Spirit of God change your life wherever you might be at this moment. I'm reading from two portions of Scripture. We'll read first from Paul's epistle to Corinth, the first Corinthians chapter 13, and begin reading at verse 8. And then we will combine that with the gospel of John chapter 11, looking at verses 14 and 15. High, high honor to your pastor. What a tremendous anointed man of God. What a tremendous anointed man of God. And also high honor to First Lady. She's anointed in her own right. Appreciate her. All their family, all the ministry, we give you honor today. First Corinthians chapter 13, verse 8. Charity never faileth. But whether it be prophecies, they shall fail. Whether it be tongues, they shall cease. Whether there be knowledge, it shall vanish away. For now we know in part. I want you to notice that, that we only know partially. We know in part. And prophecy is the same way. We prophesy in part. But when that which is perfect or mature or complete is come, then that which is in part shall be done away. When I was a child, I spake as a child, I understood as a child, I thought as a child. When I became a man, I put away childish things. For now we see through a glass darkly. There's that same picture of knowing in part. It's like looking through a tinted window, a glass darkly. And you can see on the other side partially. But there's not crisp lines. There's not a strong outline. You're looking through a glass darkly. But then, face to face. Now I know in part. There it is again. Right now, we know in part. But then shall I know even as also I am known. And now abideth faith, hope, charity. These three, but the greatest of these... Is charity. Then from the gospel of John, I feel the anointing in place. From the gospel of John, we'll be looking at verses 14 and 15. But if I may, I'd like to turn you to verse 15 first. And just see the first word of John chapter 11, verse 15. That first word is and. (laughs) And those of you who remember your English grammatical structure know that you cannot start a sentence with and. Because and is a conjunction, it joins two thoughts together. So there has to be a thought preceding and a thought afterwards. We know and understand that in the original writings, when John wrote this, it was not separated into chapter and verse. That came years later so we could find different places in the Scripture more easily. So, all that to say this. I'm going to read these two verses, 14 and 15, consecutively as they should. Are you ready? Then said Jesus unto them plainly, Lazarus is dead and I am glad. That's why they separated the verses there. Little shock value. Jesus was absolutely using shock value because he wanted to bring emphasis to why he was not there. That this was something that he was purposefully glad about. And I'm glad for your sakes that I was not there to the intent you may believe. 
nevertheless, let us go unto him. And I'm preaching for just a little while this morning about an inspiration tree. Inspiration tree. God bless you. You may be seated. I wish very much that my wife Lois was able to be with me today. I hear pastors over and over saying this, that if you want to have revival and move of God, yes, invite the Greens, but if you want to have fun, invite his wife too. So I must not be very fun. I don't, I don't know. But I miss her when she is not with us. And Luscious is the light of my life. And I, that's my nickname for her. You can call her Lois. Don't, don't use the other one. And I'm so glad that the, she has been joined to me all these years. I did bring a couple of books, a powerful prayer keeper for our children, and some Bible studies. Please avail that afterwards after church, and you could be blessed by this new material that Lois has brought out. We have been traveling full-time um, in itinerant ministry all across the world, and this is our 26th year of traveling this way. We literally raised our kids on the road. My youngest, Judah, Judah was just three months old when we basically sold everything we had except for some heirlooms that we kept in storage and loaded everything up into a Caprice Classic. Me, Luscious, and the four kids, including Judah, who was an infant. Everybody had a small place in the back of the trunk that that was their space. Anything gained, something had to be getting rid of because that's all the space they had. And we began to travel. It wasn't long until God blessed us financially and we began to get a trailer. And when I say trailer that we pulled all over the United States, this trailer was what we could afford at the time. The roof leaked and the floor was falling in. But we were thankful that the family had a place to stay instead of hotel rooms or Sunday school rooms in some place, etc. But one of the great things about being raising our family on the road it's not just all the wonderful people that we meet like you and not just all the tremendous revival services and life-changing experiences of dead raised, blind eyes open, people receiving the Holy Ghost, marriages restored, but, but also a privilege to see probably more of creation than what most people get to see. And we have been privileged to travel in the Catskill Mountains of New York State and we have visited the Grand Tetons of Wyoming and Smoky Mountains in North Carolina and Tennessee. We have driven through the Cascades in Washington with mighty Mount Rainier, the budding magnolia trees in the Ozarks of Arkansas, the Grand Canyon of Arizona, Niagara Falls and New York, Redwood Forest to the Gulf Stream waters. This land was made for you and me. But all of these things, even simple sunrise and sunsets, elicit a response from my wonderful wife. She likes to immediately, when she sees something amazing in nature, to begin to sing about how great God is. Then sings my soul, my Savior God to thee, how great thou art, how great thou art. Indeed, sunrise, sunset, great things in nature should inspire inspiration. The word inspiration, the original Greek that we read from the Word of God, means to inhale or to take your breath. <gasps> That's what inspiration does. It's so inspiring that your body forgets to breathe for a second. This is inspiration. It's the same word that is used in the Scripture when it says all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable that when the authors or when the writers began to write authored by the spirit of God it was so breathtaking when they began to write as they were led in these scriptures so we've heard Lois sing so many songs about the goodness of God all across the world we were traveling at this particular time I'm talking about in a place called L.A. And as we were in L.A., we, anybody here been to L.A.? See, now I tricked every one of you. I'm not talking about Los Angeles. I'm talking about the real L.A. 
No, not even Louisiana. L.A. is lower Alabama. That's right. I don't know why that is, but if you travel there, they will tell you this is the real L.A. So we were in lower Alabama between Fairhope and Foley. And there as we were traveling, we saw this sign we'd never noticed before. It was, I believe it was a brown. It could have been a green sign that connotes something to do with state or federal. But the sign just pointed to the right, and it said, Inspiration Oak. An arrow. Well, we were running a little early for our scheduled time, so we said, hey, let's go see what this Inspiration Oak is all about. And we moved off of Highway 98 just a couple of hundred yards off the main road, and there was this beautiful pasture area with this amazing tree. The kind of tree it is is a live oak tree. And this is not speaking of it being living, but live oak the type of oak tree it is. And we were amazed at how large and how massive it was as it was in this meadow area. And it's going to be difficult for you to see because this old picture is so pixelated. But right up under here is a man actually standing beneath the limbs of this tree. It stood some 60 feet tall, which is very tall in itself. But the base of the tree was 27 feet in circumference. My wife and my four children, the children were smaller at the time, wrapped our arms and we couldn't reach around the tree holding hands one with another. The tree is some 300 to 400 years old. Its limbs are like trees themselves attached to the base and reaching out almost parallel to the ground. Those from L.A. tell me that they used to play chase on this trees. They could literally get on top of the tree because it's so wide and flat and run being chased there at the end to run another limb and go back toward the base of the tree. But I think what amazes me the most about this tree, it's 197 feet from the edge of one side all the way to the edge of another. 197 feet. And I know for many people just throwing out a number like that isn't very relative, but that, that's two-thirds of a football field. It would be if planted in the middle of this auditorium would shade the entire auditorium and reach into the parking lot as well. It is a massive, massive tree. Now, immediately, me and the boys decided, let's climb it. Because if there's a tree, it's got to be climbed, right? And when I decided to climb this tree, I was no longer as young as I used to be. I got a renewed value for Zacchaeus. That wee little man in the scripture that climbed up in a tree to see Jesus. He wasn't a young man anymore, but he made an extreme effort to get a place where he could visualize the Lord. I realized I'm too old for this. So I just pushed the boys up, and they climbed and ran around the tree, and Lois was over there singing. She's all spiritual, and we're over here all carnal and stuff. We had an amazing time with that tree and just were inspired. It took our breath. A few short months later, we traveled down the same way, all of us wanting to go see the tree, be inspired, hear Lois sing, so here we go. But this time when we pulled off the road there in lower Alabama, there was a fence up. And as we peered through the gates of the fence, locked, barred, we saw the tree no longer had leafy boughs. There was no more beautiful reaching of the limbs but it had died. What a shame. They had closed it off because the limbs were starting to fall. And it was dangerous for anybody to be close to it. We were heartbroken. And I thought about a tree that had lived 300 to 400 years. And what would cause it? to die in just the short time that we had been introduced to this tree. I did some research on Google and found out some interesting things about this property and this tree. It was on a parcel of land that had been owned by a family for several generations. And always within the family was a fight, a strong discussion about what to do with this amazing tree. Part of the family wanted to share it with the world. 
where people from everywhere could come and be inspired and they talked about let's just give that land to the government or to the state and people can be inspired from all over the world. And the other side of the family said, no way. We, we don't want tourism here. We don't want the traffic that that's going to bring. People are just going to be discarding the trash and all the things that happen with traffic. And so they said, no, let's don't. The fight is in the family. Finally, one of the patriarchs passed away, and whoever came into possession of that part of the land gave it either to the state or to the government. And it became a place that was memorialized. It was a monument so that people could come and be inspired. But the other side of the family decided that this was not what should have happened. And so they got up late one night, fired up their chainsaw. That's right. And they began to cut a two or three inch deep gash around the bark of that tree. Those of you who know that's where the life flowing sap is, is just beneath the bark. And by the time that it was found what had happened, it was absolutely too late to save Inspiration Tree. The government brought horticulturalists, agriculturalists, those that study this, and they could not find anyone that could save the tree. And now from this place, they had decided the best thing they can do is to cut it up and sell chunks of it as memorials of what used to be. Now, I'll tell you, I'm not a big tree hugger, right? But even I think that that is a huge shame. Anybody with me? It's a shame because not only did this other side of the family destroy the opportunity for everybody in the world to go and be inspired by a tree that God had created, but... But they destroyed their own inspiration. Never again will they go and see that tree and be inspired. Never again will it affect their life like it used to affect. That's a shame. But we do the same thing in the spiritual realm. Because the only way that a miracle, a healing, an anointing, a prophecy will come to our life is down a street that is named faith. But when faith doesn't operate like we think it should or the promise or the miracle doesn't happen in the time frame that we think it should, we began to put roadblocks on that road called faith and God can't get it to us. The truth of the matter is God's ways are far beyond our ways. We only know in part. We're only looking through a glass darkly. And we shut God off way too soon because of our lack of understanding. You, do you remember them, uh, that toy we used to play with as a kid that was called Jack in the Box? I'm not talking about that restaurant where you get 10 tacos deep fried for a dollar. I'm, I'm talking about that toy, right? All around the mulberry bush, the monkey chased the weasel. That's the way the monkey, money goes, pop goes the way. And out, how many of you remember that? I must be really old. Only a few people need to bring that puppy back. I learned that I could manipulate Jack. I knew that I could crank that little toy box like six times. And right at the top of that box, Jack is about ready to jump out and surprise everyone. I learned that I could put it behind the door of my sister's room. And when she unsuspectingly came in, the door just nudged Jack. He jumps out and performed for me <laughs> through the fear of my sister. And trust me, Mom took care of that situation, so... Sometimes we think that we can manipulate our God. Like he is a jack-in-the-box, and if we will crank four or five times, and out he will pop to entertain us. Nothing in the kingdom of God is formula-driven. Nothing. Everything in the kingdom of God is relationship-driven. We even talk about the salvific formula that there must be a belief in confession and repentance and baptism and infilling of the Holy Ghost. But these aren't steps of a formula. These are patterns and places of relationship where we confess that He's Lord, where we allow Him to be our Savior. When we, it's relationship. 
By the same token, we as his children sometimes look at the promises of the word of God like formulas. Well, Scripture says, you're sick, call for the elders of the church. Know the prayer of faith should save the sick. And so we make it a formula. I'm going to do one plus two. God, you've got to do three. And we want to tie him in to some formula. Miracles and healings are relationship driven. Look at how Jesus opens blinded eyes in the gospel. Why didn't he just go everywhere and just say, be open, be open. But every individual he opened their eyes was uniquely different. Some he touches, some he speaks to, some he actually spits in their eyes, some he spits on the ground, makes a mud ball. But every individual has to be taken from where they are in their relationship of faith to a Messiah and brought to a place perhaps their pride is too much or their faith is too little. And the journey of relationship... Do you know what a fleece is when you put a fleece before the Lord? I see a lot of head nodding, so at least a good few of you do that. Does God answer your fleece? Uh, You got a little more quiet. (laughs) I'll tell you this. God does not answer my fleeces. And probably because I'm putting improper fleeces before him. But let me tell you a true story. I, I was in desperate need of direction in my life, my ministry. And so I prayed. This is my fleece, right? I prayed before God. I said, God, I have got to have an answer. So if you want me to go to the left, have so-and-so call me by 12 o'clock tomorrow. But if you want me to go to the right, don't have so-and-so call me by 12 o'clock tomorrow. You see, this improper fleece has got God's arm twisted behind his back because 12 o'clock tomorrow I know the way of God I thought true story so I decided since I was waiting for an answer from God that I would fast all the next day until 12 and so I'm fasting and I'm praying and I'm seeking for an answer phone doesn't ring at 11 Phone doesn't ring at 12. I thought, you know what? If God's on a different time zone, I'm just going to wait till 1. I don't know why we do crazy things like that. And so I wait till 1 o'clock, and then I'm like, hey, that's it. I've got my answer. The man didn't call me, so I know I'm supposed to go to the other direction. I walked out of my door to begin to exact that open door that I thought God had just spoken to me. What I didn't realize is that a limb in the night had caught too much wind and had fallen upon my phone line. It was laying on the ground. See, the guy might have been trying to call me. I have no idea. And that's what I heard God doing. (laughs) You're going to force me to give you an answer? You're going to twist my arm? This isn't something that you just rub the lamp and expect Jesus' genie to jump out and give you wishes. This is a relationship of faith and a relationship of love. So this is how we get easily confused when we began to say, I did what you told me to do, and it didn't happen. I obeyed what I was supposed to do. I prayed like I was supposed to pray. I fasted like I was supposed to fast it, and no answer. I read a book that the former president of the United States of America, Richard Nixon, had approved as a biography. And he began to declare in this book that he was raised in an extremely poor home. His wife, his mother rather, was a Quaker. And it was said of her that when she would pray, often she would begin to speak things that people around her didn't understand. Probably a spirit-filled lady. It was said of her that she would speak things that would happen in the future to people that she knew and it came to pass. Probably a very powerful lady. This is the environment. But they were very poor, and their plan was to do this. Richard Nixon had an elder brother, and they would pull all of their resources together financially and send him, the eldest brother, to the university. Once he got his degree and his career, then he would use his finances to help the rest of the family go to university, and there was the plan. But as they began to follow through with this plan, the eldest brother is in the university, and he gets sick with leukemia. He is getting sicker and sicker. 
So Richard Nixon did. He said what he knew to do according to the word of God. He prayed. God heal my brother. This is our only hope of financial blessing. This is the only way it can happen. He prayed. He fasted. And his brother still died while he was still going to the university. And so Mr. Nixon made this statement. He said, there is no God. And then he hedged a little and he said, well, if there is a God, he he doesn't affect men and women's lives. He hedged a little more and said, maybe there's a higher power and maybe it affects men and women's life. But I know this. He doesn't care anything for me personally because when I needed him the most, I did what I was supposed to and he didn't answer me. At least not in your thoughts and in your minds how it was going to happen, Mr. President. All of us have dealt with this to some degree, wondering why God didn't answer our prayer. Where was he when we needed him the most? How come when we did what we were supposed to, it didn't seem to turn out that way? But for you in the place today, you've not gone to the extreme of our former president and say, I'm an atheist, there is no God. You would not be here except you believe. But all of us got this stink in our testimony. This place of hurt in our life when we look back to how come God didn't. And we have all kind of excuses because we don't know. Maybe my faith wasn't strong enough. Maybe I displeased God. Maybe this and maybe that. And all kind of reasons why we try to give ourselves an answer why God didn't. But the truth of the matter is we are not meant to know it all. We only know in part. This is exactly what is happening in John chapter 11. Because Martha and Mary have a brother named Lazarus, whom Jesus is very close to. And when Lazarus, their brother, gets sick, Martha and Mary are spreading their testimony. Don't you worry a bit. Because Jesus and I are close. All we have to do is get communication. All we have to do is pray. All we have to do is talk to him. And surely because he loves us and he is a healer, he's going to drop everything he's doing wherever he's at and come quickly here to Bethany where we live and he's going to heal my brother. That's their testimony. That's their faith. That's their belief. They send word to Jesus And when he gets word that Lazarus, and by the way, this is the note they wrote, Lazarus whom you love, like they had to remind him. Or maybe there's a thousand Lazaruses, I don't know. But Lazarus whom you love is sick, expecting him to drop everything and run to Bethany and heal up their sick brother. And when he gets the word, he does nothing. It's like he didn't even hear him pray. It's like he didn't even hear any kind of request, a need of help. And the disciples must have been confused. We thought he loved Lazarus. Maybe he offended them. Maybe Martha had a bone in the pudding the last time she cooked for him. Maybe he's not going to do miracles and all the questions that might have come in their mind about why he would not be there. And it's not just one day of ignoring. It's like he never heard the request. Two days of ignoring. And finally the servant comes back and says, Hey, don't bother coming to Bethany. It's too late. Lazarus is dead. And when the disciples hear that, they are more confused than ever before. Why didn't he go? At least we were thinking he knew everything would be okay, so he didn't go. But now Lazarus is dead. And so Jesus turns to them plainly and says, well, Lazarus is just asleep and we're going to go wake him up. That's what he says. And if they were confused before, they're very befuddled now. And they say, well, it's good for sick people to rest. Let's don't go wake him up. And he said unto them plainly, this is our text, Lazarus is dead. Yippee! Woohoo!" 
awesome. I'm so glad that he is dead to the intent you may believe. Let us go into him. They were confused. He was not giving them reasons or excuses. He's just saying this is a good thing. And I'm glad. So he makes his way to Bethany. The Bible lets us know in one of the Gospels that Martha found out he was at the edge of town. And so one of the Gospels declares that she sneaks out the back door, runs and hides behind a tree. When no one's looking, she goes the back way. She goes a secret way to find him. Why? Because she doesn't have an excuse for why he wasn't here. People are wanting to say, well, well, where was this Jesus? I thought you said that he loved you. I thought you were going to church and you were one of the Christians and and this is what's going to happen by your testimony and by your faith. She's got no excuse why it didn't happen. And so she don't want to meet anybody. She goes a secret way. When she gets to Jesus, she's like, Lord, your timing is so bad. If you'd have been here just a few days ago, I know you, you'd have healed my sick brother. I'd have fixed the best meal you have ever eaten. We'd have rejoiced, we'd have laughed, we'd have feasted, we'd have had a great time. But it's too late. They talk a little while, Martha goes home and she tells Mary, hey, you can go a secret way, nobody's watching that way. Mary does the same thing because she has no excuse for her testimony. And when she gets to Jesus, I see her as the more emotional one of the two. And so she's like, Why weren't you here? You waited too late. Your timing stinks. But Jesus doesn't go a secret way. The Bible said he walked right down Main Street of town. And all the people that had heard their testimonies and wondered what the excuse is see Jesus coming to that situation. Don't you see the shop owners turning their sign from open to close, locking their door? Let's see what he's going to say. Until everybody in the town is following Jesus like he's the Pied Piper all the way out to the graveyard. And here the town is waiting. What's his excuse? They run into a snowstorm in Chicago and they shut the airport down. Traffic so bad it couldn't. What, what is his excuse? And they're waiting for an answer of why. But Jesus doesn't give any excuses. In fact, this is John eleven thirty five. 35. It's the first scripture I learned to quote. And the verse simply says, Jesus wept. <laughs> Can you say them two words? And you're quoting scripture already. That's a good thing. Jesus is standing in front of the grave. And he's not trying to answer all their questions. But just tears are flowing down his face. He's weeping. And the people are watching this. And finally, they begin to nudge each other and say this. We don't know why he wasn't here. We don't know what the excuse is. But when we see that expression of love, this we know. He did love Lazarus. And when they had faith that he still loved Lazarus, that's all the faith they need for a miracle. And Jesus turns to them and says, remove the stone from that grave. Martha says, "Uh uh-uh, we ain't going there because that's a stink to my testimony. I put that behind that grave because I didn't understand where you were at. I didn't know why you failed me. I don't understand, and I'm not going there. I'm going to shut that off like it never happened. I'm not going to remember that. I'm not opening Pandora's box. And Jesus said, vulnerability is a must. You can't just go on with where you're at expecting that somehow everything's going to gloss over because this was an opportunity to bring to you a new dimension of faith and understanding. Remove the stone. And when they remove the stone, Jesus looks into that inky blackness, death and darkness, and calls forth with a term of endearment, Lazarus, Lazarus, come forth. And even though he had been dead and the worms had been eating his body, there was a resurrection and a wholeness that came to that body. And he came out of that grave. I, I believe he was bunny hopping 
Because the Bible says he's still tied head to toe with grave clothes. So somehow he had to get from there outside of the grave, maybe bunny hopping. And now Jesus turns to not Martha, Mary, and the disciples, but to everyone and says, now loose him and let him go. Now it's making sense to the disciples why Jesus was glad that he was not there to heal him. Now they're beginning to understand why he was so excited that he didn't answer their prayers. Because before they knew him as a dimension of the healer, but now they know him in a greater dimension of the resurrection and of the life. Before they had faith only to the place of death, but now they have faith even beyond death. He is the resurrection. He is the life. I've experienced this many times in my life. Our pastor, who had been my pastor for 18 years, got up in the pulpit that day, read a pre-written letter of resignation, not saying why or anything. Tears in his eyes, he folded the letter, put in his pocket, walked down the middle aisle. We would never see him in that church again. Literally, the saints of God, the deacons of the board, the leaders of the church were trying to grab him as he's walking by. Some running to meet him at the back of the auditorium saying, please, just talk to us. Please, just share with us. Let us know what's going on. There's got to be some other way than this resignation and just walking away. No answers. One week later, we found he had divorced his wife. One week from that, he was remarried to another girl that he had been having a relationship with. And he walked away from his daughter's teenage and early 20s, walked away from his wife many years, walked away from a church, walked away from an organization, walked away from a powerful ministry and reputation. I can remember praying so many times, Why, God? Because you know everything, the end from the beginning. The next year in that church, there were 32 divorces. Families ripped apart, somehow thinking, well, if pastor can't keep his marriage together, no use in me fighting. The next few months in that church, there were two fist fights that happened. One of them in the foyer of the church. Yeah, crazy. One of them in the altar. Fist flying. There was so much disunity and confusion and hurt. I overheard one individual saying, we need our pastor back. And I don't care if he comes back with three women under his arm. We need him. Confusion. Deception. So my prayer was, why God? It had been easier on the organization that loved his pulpiteer. It had been easier on the church. It had been easier on the city that saw this happening if you'd have taken him in a car accident six months before. It had been easier on his wife and easier on his children. But God didn't do that. I prayed that for years. Why? Why? But years later... I had opportunity to step behind the pulpit of that same church. And the power of God began to move from one side to the other. Backsliders running down to the front, speaking in tongues before they even hit the altar. Miracles and healings happening all across the building. Revival, atmosphere, and spirit. And as I began to step back, the Holy Ghost said, This is the answer to your prayer all them years. Why? Because God will prove that no church is built on a reputation of a man. No giftings of even one individual or teams. That it is God's church and God builds the church or we labor in vain. And not only that, not only that. 
But an organization that said nobody wants to follow that man and be the pastor of that church. A city that said this church will dry up and blow away and it'll never be anything. An organization that said we don't even want that kind. That began to realize that God is the resurrection and the life for the biggest problems and mistakes and failures that man can make. The only way that he takes us to places of greater heights and greater depths is to take us to the end of our understanding and reasoning. And when we pray, he does nothing. Because we've got him all figured out about just how revival is going to happen. Just how the harvest is going to happen. We got him figured out about how he's going to open our ministry and this is how it's going to happen and that's it. And we've got a mental picture in our mind and so often we only know in part. Paul said it this way in the text that we read, 1 Corinthians 13. He said, there are three things that abideth. There are three things you can count on. There are three things that are solid, set in concrete. He said, that is faith, that is hope, and that is charity. But then he said, wait wait just a moment. If somehow in your walk with God, your faith has been ripped out from under you because you don't understand why God didn't answer. Why did he allow that child, the sickness, the death? Why did he allow this and that? If somehow you no longer have hope and your faith and your hope is gone. Paul said the greatest of these is charity. So if you don't have hope because of what you've experienced. If you're not sure your faith is strong enough because unanswered prayer. If you can get your eyes back on an expression of his love for you one more time. That's all you need to spark faith for obedience just one more time and bring a resurrection to your faith and to your hope and to your ministry and to your life and to your prophecies and to your promises and to your revival. So stand with me and let's go back in our memory as we stand and look as they take our Jesus to that whipping post. And they began to strip him of clothing and beat him with cat of nine tails from the front and back, according to Roman tradition. At the same time, a Roman soldier from the back, a Roman soldier from the front. With whips that are not leaving lashes, but are lacerating and cutting chunks of his flesh large areas of ball bearings as we would think of them to bruise the innards as well as the bones. And if we watch, knowing that Isaiah declared with his stripes, we are healed, that this is his expression of love for our healing. But why are you staying there? For seven and eight and twelve and fourteen stripes. We see it. Prophecy's been fulfilled. We see it. But he stays for twenty, for thirty, until his body is just a pulp of flesh, unrecognized. The scripture says his visage, what makes up his features of his face, marred more than any man's. You yourself said you could call 12 legions of angels by asking your father, why why would you stay there? Because if you're in 2022 and you're dealing with leftovers of COVID that you can't seem to get rid of, and you wonder how come the sickness and disease that is in your body, even though you've been prayed for, you're still dealing with wonder how come there's still pain in your back and your joints when you've been anointed until you smell like an olive tree. What, what is this? If you don't understand it all, just get your eyes back on an inspiration tree of the whipping post and know this. I don't know. I don't understand. But this I know. 
He loves my healing. He loves to heal me. And if somehow you feel like that you have gotten lost and God doesn't know where you are, just go with me a few paces outside the city of Jerusalem 2,000 years ago. And there, that skull-shaped heel of Golgotha has, he lays upon that cross member and cries, it is finished. Why? Hour after hour after hour of agony. Because there needs to be a mental image impressed upon your mind of how much he loves me. He loves me. He loves me. And when we don't know and when we don't understand, if we can get our eyes back on an inspiration tree of the cross of Calvary, then we'll know again. I don't know it all. I don't understand it all. I don't know the timing. I don't know why. But I know he loves me. And if you got enough faith to receive that, that there's enough faith in Him to speak into that hurt and that brokenness and say, let resurrection happen. You thought you'd never have peace, but there's a resurrection. You thought you'd never have joy, but there's a resurrection. You thought you'd never have ministry, but there's a resurrection. I even hear the Spirit of the Lord declaring, as strange as it is for us to receive, He's glad that he's not answered that prayer of yours yet. He so feels excited about what's coming to your life that he's willing for you to go through confusion and hurt and, and brokenness when your hope and your faith has been... He's willing, not only is he willing, he's glad. Because on the other side of this greater faith than what you've ever had greater understanding of revelation of who he is than what you've ever experienced in the light of this understanding I'm saying thank you Jesus because now that I see what you have done and why you didn't answer that prayer and why you allowed that hurt and why, why this death happened that confusion happened. I, now I see that there's revelation and faith I'd never had unless prayers were unanswered. For this church, I speak this prophetically. You're at a threshold of deeper and higher and wider than you have ever been. But not just because we have faith that we're going to move into it. It's because He's brought us to a place where we have to trust Him. Beyond our knowledge and our giftings and our abilities, this is the best that we've been able to do. And we don't know why yet the revival of harvest that changes this entire city and region has only begun in a short. But we need to know that you are revealing that to us. Here's what you have to do, Martha. You have to be willing, not just to try to move from this place, but you've got to let God deal with the toughest places of your walk with God ever. For some of you, You've asked forgiveness over and over for the same thing and you feel like that you will never overcome. There's an overcoming power for you because a resurrection is in this revival, in this place. For some of you, healing has eluded you for a long time, although you've been faithful and you've asked. Don't let this revival go by without reaching out for another healing, another miracle. Deepen heights, stretch us. It starts with unanswered prayer, feeling abandoned and left alone by God Himself. Why didn't He answer? Why didn't He do this? So, everyone standing across this place, I give you invitation. If it's not you, fine. 
But if I've been preaching to you and you know exactly the hurt of unanswered prayer, it's time to remove that stone from that place where you thought you had a broken testimony, you, you had some stink in your walk with God, some, some unexpected thing. It's time to bring that down to the front and in this altar area as close as you can get, as close as you can crowd in, the ministry is here to speak resurrection and to speak life. If you need repentance, although you made mistakes over and over, this is your opportunity to finally get that place you need. If you need a commitment, baptism waters are here. If you need the Holy Ghost power, this is your opportunity. There you go. Just come. Just come stand. You don't have to give yourself in prayer yet. Just come stand. <laughs> they're crowded in can you get a little closer I know they're going to be in the aisles and in the second aisles that'll be fine crowd in as close as you get ministry is already in the altar helping us <laughs> get up again <laughs> get up again get up again confess again declare again Watch God do for you to a greater authority and power than what He has ever done before. Believe again. Commit again. Flow again. Come on, young person. This is your opportunity. This is your opportunity. Now lift up your hands all over the building. And I want you to remove whatever wall, whatever stone that is keeping the presence of God from that hurt and that confusion. Lift up both your hands right now. In Jesus' name. Let that vulnerability happen right now. Let the healer walk into your room. Let the resurrection and the life speak to you right now. In Jesus' name. That's it. Begin to cry out. Let him see everything. Let him see everything. Let him see everything. Now get your eyes on the love of God. Now get your eyes on the love of God. Now get your eyes on the love of God. I speak healing and restoration. I speak fresh anointing. I speak purpose. I speak a resurrection of ministry and calling. Praise group, would you make your way to the platform? Help us in worship for just a little while. If you know how to pray in the Spirit, somebody pray in the Spirit. If there's an intercessor in the place, lift your voice and intercede. Let the Holy Ghost help us break through. Thank you for listening. Special thanks to those who give generously to this ministry. It is because of you that this ministry is possible. You can visit our website or church app if you would like to give. And if you enjoyed this podcast, you can subscribe, like and share it with your friends, and tag us on social media. Because we want to witness with you what God is doing in your life. Thank you, and God bless.